Shot reverse shot. I'm Matt Risby. Hello, everyone, and uh, this is Ed Davis. How are you doing? Yep, doing very well. Looking forward to a discussion of uh, films that didn't do very well because mm. uh, I saw one of them today, and I think we'll be talking about it a fair bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, this week has generally been dominated for us uh, by watching some royal shit. Myself, especially, I've put myself through the mangle uh, for you lucky listeners. Um, but yeah, it's not just been about flops this week. There's been quite a a lot happening. It's been a busy week uh, in the world of films. Um, most importantly, uh, and kind of most distressingly, Harrison Ford uh, made a crash landing on a golf course, which was kind of scary for about an hour because everyone was scared that he might have like perished. Um, but then, kind of, everyone kind of thought through the the kind of way it would have panned out. I mean, imagine yourself playing a round of golf on a on a, on a kind of nice sun, sunny day, and then all of a sudden a plane comes towards you, it crashes, and a hand solo gets out. That would be pretty gangster. Yeah, I think that you'd after you'd looked around and tried to see where the cameras were, probably mm. then just be in awe of the fact that um, real life Han Solo, Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford had literally just cheated death in in front of your eyes. Mm, yeah, it gave uh, the internet a lot of. Uh, uh, material this week. Um, personal favourite was the the kind of the pictures of the the kind of aerial shot of of, ha- of Harrison Ford being kind of taken away on the stretcher, but they'd replaced it with him frozen in carbonite being <laughs> taken away, which was which was quite nice. Uh, and then kind of oft repeating the line from uh, from uh, uh, Last Crusade, I think, where he says to Sean Connery, "I can't fly the pl- I can fly the plane, but I can't land it," which is you know pretty apt, but. Um, I just have to say that, like Harrison Ford this year, great actor, solid guy by all accounts. He's a fucking liability as far as uh, as accidents are concerned. Yeah, well, to be fair, in both cases, he was uh, flying a hunk of junk. Uh, mm, absolutely, or at least trying to get into one when he banged his shin on the Millennium Falcon or whatever it is that uh, caused his injury on the set of Star Wars. Mm. And this isn't his first like aviation kind of uh, mishap. He's crashed a helicopter and a plane before. Yeah, I, I, someone was telling me about that. It just at a certain point, when do you say no, or is it just impossible to say no to Harrison Ford when he says, "Yeah, I want to fly a vintage World War Two plane." And like the thing is, if you fall off a horse, he's kind of back in the saddle is a is a kind of important mantra to kind of build your confidence back up. But if you if you crash a plane, like you're not going to get too many opportunities to get to get it kind of get back in the cockpit. At a certain point, I think he probably will should realize that. <laughs> He's had a few too many close calls, uh, mm. and he is. Uh, I'm sure he can find something else, like you know, juggling chainsaws or something that he can occupy his retirement with. Yeah, Tom Hanks has had a fun week. <laughs> um, I say fun. Um, I think he's given me kind of more joy in kind of three minutes than than I've ever had off a kind of fifty eight year old man giving me joy. <laughs> um, in that he's kind of turned up in the new Carly Rae Jepsen video, and it's quite a delight. It is. Uh, you you were the one who sent me a link to it because I hadn't. I'd knew. I knew that there was a video, a Carly Rae Jepsen video out, but I didn't know what exactly it entailed. And then just watching it, it's watching, uh, um, watching Tom Hanks at his kind of most daffy and goofy and most mm. kind of uh, avuncular 
mouthing along to this incredibly perky, upbeat pop song. Uh, yeah, it's just a it's a really lovely little video that uh, I was not entire. I didn't realise I needed. And it kind of had been kind of kept pretty quiet. I think I didn't even know he was doing it, and then just a, it one day appeared, and I was like, "How did someone not say this was happening?" Yeah, I think it's. I mean, I think it's uh, probably just one of those things, like when he was on the Nerdist podcast, which was a big surprise, and they said, "Yeah, they just like sent him a vintage typewriter or something." I think probably Carly Rae Jepsen did the exact same thing. She's probably got a few of them lying around, you know. Yeah, well, it's, she's Canadians, and they're 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 mad about typewriters up there. Hockey and typewriters—they're they're two national obsessions. Mm, and free healthcare, thats what it gets you. You yeah. know. Well, they need it because of all the maple syrup. Mm, national stereotypes. I know, right? Um, yeah. So, as Ed said at the the, the the kind of top of the episode, we're talking about flops. Um, and we're not talking about kind of uh, Pele style flops. Um, do you did you get that reference, Ed? Did he fall over a lot? No, <laughs> no, he did an advert and kind of marketing campaign for erectile uh, dysfunction. Yeah, yeah. Now I now I know what you're getting at. And he added the catchphrase, uh, which was brilliant at the start of the advert. He's kind of in a crowd of footballers, and he's and he says, uh, "We talked about a lot of things in the changing room, but one thing we never mentioned." And then he turns to the camera and says erection problems <laughs> and then uh, at the end it's a, he advertises this kind of uh, helpline or whatever it is I can't remember and then at the end he says get help I would and then here's a fact do you know who dubbed his voice over? Gary Lineker? No Peter Serapinowitz Oh okay So yeah he's played Darth Maul and Pele which uh, not too many people have got on their resume Two of the greatest villains <laughs> in history Yeah absolutely Anyway uh, sorry uh, kind of Pele's limp dick aside, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're talking about flops, um, films that kind of, uh, for a kind of variety of reasons, um, do quite badly at the box office and um, kind of sparked off talking about this uh, like a week or so ago, um, talking about the release of the Wachowski's new film, Jupiter Ascending, um, which has kind of taken a cr- critical and commercial pasting. And you saw it today, Ed. I did. I finally went to go and see it. Um... At a at one o'clock in a nearly empty screening room, which, uh, cinema, which I think is the best way to see it, because mm. I was able to just kind of chuckle to myself for the entire way through because uh, it's a bad, bad film. It's a, it's an enjoyably bad film and it's bonkers, but yeah, it's the sort of thing where I think it's it's best to be as alone as possible just so that you can kind of mutter to yourself, you know, is this a real film? <laughs> Has yeah. is someone pranking me? At certain points, I did just kind of. Look around at the other, the other like five people who were in the screening room, the, in the cinema, just to see if they were seeing the same thing that I was, and it wasn't just some weird hallucination. Mm. And it's like when we're going to get into a lot of the reasons why films uh, flop. There are kind of a, a variety of of kind of factors that that come into play. But um, looking at the kind of the the production history and the reception of uh, Jupiter Ascending, it seems like it's almost the perfect storm of everything. It was meant to come out last summer and was being billed as a big blockbuster and then it got pushed back into the dead zone of March when you don't really open blockbusters that much unless it's you know a Marvel film which can handle being at a poor time of year for release. The marketing, the marketing for it never really had a handle on what the film was about. And having watched it, I can understand why, because I think it'd be uh, next to nearly impossible to explain 
the whole idea of it being about genetic reincarnation, but not spiritual reincarnation. There's no spiritualism in it. It's just the fact that someone shows up with the same DNA code as a long dead queen, uh, that there are half wolf, half bee, and half elephant characters in it. Um, all of Bees? Them. Bees. Bees. Beads. Bees. <laughs> um, any excuse any excuse to, to bust that out. Um, yeah, also characters with hilariously on-the-nose names. The half-bee character, who is uh, played by Sean Bean, is named Stinger Apri. Oh, so wow. Bee, he kind of bees twice over. The half-wolf character, played by Channing Tatum, is named Kane, as in canine. And the half-elephant uh, character is named Nesh, as in Ganesh. And they've all got these right. names where right. it doesn't take a huge amount of time to just kind of think, yeah, that's a real uh, unimaginative choice of name. They've just gone for a famous elephant god and kind of chopped the name in half. Uh, and yeah, it's just it's just such a, a bizarre film that I can't imagine what anyone would have done to actually sell it and get people to watch it other than, you know, for pure spectacle, which it has a lot of. Mm. It's difficult to imagine like, the Wachowskis in, in the kind of the writer's room kind of going through, because obviously... They probably went through a lot of drafts of this script before they shot it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Stinger, Apiary, uh, that kind of been their first choice. Do you reckon they kind of went with, like, uh, kind of stripey muck bumblebee? And then they were like, no, that's, that's too obvious, man. We're going to have to change that. And they kind of watered it down to Stinger Apiary. Or, like, John Honeyman. <laughs> John Honeyman, I do like that one. Good. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's um, it's a film that has gone down uh, like a wet shit everywhere. Um, no one's liked it. Some, some people have kind of uh, got on board with saying, "Oh, it's it's quite you know it's pretty crackers." So you know we've got to commend. Uh, you know they'd rather watch that than just another superhero retread, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it definitely has. A lot of ambition, but it is also incredibly goofy. Um, I just remembered that one of the characters, their name isn't said in the film, so you only find out what their name is in the credits, or if you go to IMDb, uh, there's a character called Chicanery Knight. Nice. Uh, which is ridiculous. <laughs> um, and, you you know, the scale of it is hugely impressive, and there's some really startling images. I think probably one of the main reasons they made it was just so they could have an image of a ship kind of rising slowly through the rings of Saturn and broke breaking apart all of the various bits of debris that make up the rings. Mm. You know, so you can see that there are moments in it where you can clearly think this is an image they had in their mind and they wanted to construct a story around it to create that image. And so, you know, it's 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 bold and very visually impressive, but the story is so weird and the characters are kind of dull. Um, they, they. I compared it to the, the Fifth Element, which is another film that has a lot of that same sort of feeling to it. It's got lots of production values. It's got this crazy mythology that doesn't quite hold together. But at least there, you have characters who are memorable, even if it's like Ruby Road, who is memorable because he's really divisive and annoying. Mm. Um, but at least you remember him, and you remember him saying, uh, "Dallas, my man." all the way through the film or, or you remember Lilu Dallas multipass and things like that whereas I, I would struggle to recall many lines from the film uh, that aren't whispered sinisterly by Eddie Redmayne or screamed immediately afterwards 
the Wachowskis have got a bit of previous with flops because I mean everyone will kind of know them. I mean, uh, from the Matrix uh, trilogy, I think they made Bound before that, which I'm still not sure is a good film or not. I mean, I liked it when I was 15, 16, but that's because, you know, there's like tits in it. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I haven't revisited it as a kind of mature adult. Um, but yeah, the Matrix films made a, were made a literal ton of money. Um, and then they've pretty much gone 0 for 3 since. They've made uh, three pretty big flops, uh, Speed Racer, um, Cloud Atlas and uh, now Jupiter Ascending. Uh, are they kind of getting close to box office poison territory? I, I think they might be past it based on how Jupiter Ascending has done. I think that it would be very surprising if they got given that scale of a budget again. You know, And mm. I think they're, unless their Netflix series Sense8, which comes out in a few months, is a massive success and they just spend all their time working on television or you know internet TV shows, um, yeah, I can't imagine a studio looking at their track record of two very successful films in the shape of The Matrix and The Matrix Reloaded, which were both huge hits, and then everything else, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, I think they've, they've, in total, they probably cost Warner Brothers, who have released all of their films since The Matrix, somewhere in the region of over half a billion dollars at this point. Because I mean, I I watched um, Cloud Atlas this week, which is was you know is a huge kind of does and like disaster uh, financially. Mm-hmm. Um, less kind of easy to say what uh, how it went down critically because some people thought it was the best film of the year and some people thought it was the worst film of the year. Um, I watched it and kind of thought it was you know I I completely it sounds kind of uh, condescending to say to people who you know make films that cost a lot of money but you know hats off uh in regards to the the kind of ambition of it sure you know that's not me that's not me saying top marks for trying Wachowskis um but like seriously like that is a kind of outrageously ambitious film to make that costs that much money um but yeah just not a success in in kind of I mean some bits are kind of quite kind of mind-blowing and then other bits are just like why who thought this was a good idea yeah, I think certainly when you get into similar to Jupiter Ascending, anything where they have to build a huge world, you know, all mm. of the future stuff in Cloud Atlas and pretty much everything that happens off Earth in Jupiter Ascending, they feel uh, they they feel huge. They feel like a huge amount of care and attention has gone into it. But then you get and this is obviously also tied in with the novel itself, which has this six story structure, and they're all set in different places, and they all have different tones which kind of works in the novel, but then when you have to go from big epic space opera to comedy of people kind of playing around in an old folks' home, or Tom Cruise as a... a uh, not Tom Cruise, uh, Tom Hanks as a ludicrously over-the-top London gangster type, mm. it, it all feels uh, a little bit weird. Yeah, I think... Uh, it, it, I hate it uh, when when people can't get past... Uh, something that's relatively minor in a film, like if someone's put off mm. by, you know, a, a, you know, a kind of a, a duff accent here or there, or you know, like a like a dodgy special effects, you know, that otherwise kind of tarnishes, but doesn't really tarnish a film. I kind of always hate that when people pick uh, a film apart for that. But for me, Cloud Atlas, like, oh, it was like being hit by a car every time, you know, a white actor turned up uh, as a kind of East Asian character. But, like, it didn't even look good. And, like, you know, ageing up the characters, whiting up Halle Berry, 
And like, because the thing is, is if that would have just been another actor, you wouldn't have noticed and it wouldn't have made a difference because, it, you know, there were lots of characters that just slipped in in very small ways. Um, that obviously the characters share the stories and they kind of go and there, there were bits where it worked really nicely. But other bits were just like, why did you do that? That's just completely jarred me out of the film and kind of you're telling a story that kind of leaps between time periods and tones that jars anyway. It's just like you're accentuating it and I kind of feel like I'm starting again every 10 minutes. I mean, I can see how it works in terms of the the overall theme of the film, which is the idea about souls meeting and Mm -hmm. clashing again throughout history. But at the same time, it feels like it's going too... It's kind of hitting the nail on the head a little too much to have the same actors play these characters across multiple time periods. Although, obviously, it's a kind of a great opportunity for char- for some of those actors to do things they've never done before. But mm. like you say, like, it's stuff like when the characters who have to play East Asian actors, you know, those that stuff is very hard to look at and think, how is this not racist? <laughs> or how, how are they justifying themselves as this not being racist? And again, it all comes back to the question of, you know, theme over uh, coming or overpowering everything else. And uh, mm. I kind of often felt that that wasn't a strong enough justification. I mean, I, I really love Cloud Atlas, and I think that some of the, 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 the associative editing, you know, cut the way that they cut between all these different time periods is amazing and really fluid. But even then, sometimes when you watch it, there are just parts, like you say, that really jar you out of it and make you... Uh, kind of question the entire endeavour mm, yeah yeah I think uh, the worst for me was uh, was Tom Hanks as the Irish gangster mm. um, I think he was supposed to be Irish I mean it was kind of it was yeah. it was bad and then um, uh, Hugo Weaving uh, as the lady uh, in in the um, <laughs> in the uh, the retirement home because the thing is in the book the retirement uh, home story where the, the publisher is you know kind of accidentally trapped in a retirement home thinking he's kind of making a getaway from gangsters it's really funny mm-hmm. but in the film it's really not funny at all yeah because they overplay the idea of, of being sort of like a 70s british farce mm. and you know that the idea and in that instance men dressing up as women feels again feels appropriate for that theme but then you know you cut to Halle Berry and Tom Hanks trying to survive in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And mm. the the shift between them does feel like someone just threw all the footage into a blender and then just assembled it in what order it, it came out as. Um, anyway, yeah, um, flops. Uh, we're going to go uh, into that. We've kind of probably should caveat this discussion about flops in that it's quite hard to ascertain... Um, kind of true financial figures from kind of Hollywood films. There's a bit of a dark art to uh, Hollywood accounting in the sense that um, for various reasons, like tax evasion, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm pretty sure is the main one. Um, They make it quite hard to find out how much money a film's made and it's quite kind of labyrinthine to do so. So um, a lot of the figures we're going to throw out there uh, are going to be estimated, but they're kind of done on best guesses. I mean, and like what isn't kind of very well documented is um, things like marketing budgets and stuff like that. I mean, there's general rule of thumbs, rules of thumb, I should say. Um, but when we talk about budgets in this discussion, it's mostly going to be about production budgets only. So we've kind of done a lot of research 
believe it or not, and kind of pulled various sources in. And you know, there's kind of like I say differences between lists of what is and isn't a flop and what's kind of the biggest um, flop and kind of money losers out there. But you can kind of build a, a kind of overall narrative of you know maybe ten or fifteen films that have kind of popped up and keep popping up as listed as having lost the most money. Um, and yeah, we'll kind of run down the top ten. Um, uh, biggest losers, as it were, um, and yeah, then we'll kind of say what that list kind of says about why a film flops. So, Ed, do you want to hit us with numbers ten to one? Yep, number ten we have the Adventures of Pluto Nash. Wow, which uh, cost a hundred billion, hundred million dollars, and grossed a grand total of seven million dollars. Wow, that's bad. Worldwide, that is bad. Then you have Stealth, which cost one hundred and thirty-five million. And grossed seventy Sahara, which cost one hundred and sixty million, and earned one hundred and nineteen million. Uh, Jack the Giant Slayer, which cost somewhere in the range of one hundred eighty-five to two hundred million, grossed one hundred ninety-seven million. John Carter cost two hundred fifty million, grossed two hundred eighty-two million. So, like you say, that looks like it made a profit, but if it only cost two hundred fifty million to make the film on its own. And then another like hundred fifty million to budget it, to to market it. It still lost a huge amount of money. Then R.I.P.D., which cost uh, somewhere around one hundred fifty four million, it took seventy eight million. Lone Ranger cost two hundred fifty million, grossed two hundred sixty million. Thirteenth Warrior cost one hundred sixty million, grossed sixty one million. Mars Needs Ooh. Moms, and uh, cost one hundred fifty million, grossed thirty eight million. And wow. forty-seven Ronin uh, cost two hundred twenty-five million and grossed one hundred and fifty. So those are ranked ten to one um, for the the estimated loss that they made. So number ten estimated loss was ninety-six million, which is not a small sum. No. And forty-seven Ronin, which sits atop of the uh, the pile, lost one hundred and forty-nine million, which is. That's a lot of money, Ed. It is. Uh, what's interesting looking at that list is how many of them are recent films. I think that's at least in part because, you know, as mu- as murky as the accounting accounting is now, I think trying to gauge how much old films lost is probably a million times harder just because of mm-hmm. how, uh, how old those records are and probably how uh, poorly kept they were, again, for tax reasons, but also how many of them, unsurprisingly, well, pretty much all of them, are big, effects-heavy films. You know, you can yeah. clearly see they're made, they cost a huge amount of money because they assumed that people would come for the, sp- the spectacle uh, and then they were uh, dissuaded of that notion by the marketplace. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's interesting to um, kind of think about it in films where, you know, they are kind of action films or... Um, kind of effects heavy films a lot of times the kind of if there's problems the solution is more often than not throw more money at mm. it yeah um, which probably leads to a lot of um, kind of like further losses and like I say kind of big effects heavy films kind of dominate the list but uh, the one thing I was kind of hugely surprised about looking down the kind of the top 50 of the list is how many kind of non uh, um, kind of effects heavy films uh, are in there things like that aren't you know even kind of you wouldn't think would be big budget at all things like um how do you know 
the kind of romantic comedy from James L. Brooks somehow cost a hundred million dollars to make uh, town and country that kind of uh, uh, Warren Beatty uh, notorious flop cost ninety million uh, Gili, uh the uh, quite remarkable uh, Ben Affleck Jennifer Lopez gangster film cost seventy million somehow um, it's kind of insane at how budgets can spiral. Yeah, I think, again, uh, a similarity between those films, and also if you look further down the list and you see something like Ali, which cost $107 million, um, which is crazy, A, because it's a, bi- a historical biopic uh, not set in, you know, the West. You know, I'm sure that the, the set construction is not going to be as huge as it would have been for, say, Heaven's Gate, which is another film that cost a huge amount of money because of having to construct, basically reconstruct the entirety of the American West on screen um mm-hmm. but yeah i think you can see there the import the impact that star power has on those sort of films you know that you think how could a romantic comedy cost a hundred million dollars um, but how do you know starred uh, reese witherspoon who was a very very kind of hot property at the time jack nicholson who who starred and had kind of fallen on the way but was still so huge that i think he probably could have asked for a decent chunk of change for appearing in the film especially because he was entering the point in his career where he started appearing less. Uh, Paul Rudd, there's a lot of people in there who probably commanded decent paydays for appearing in the film. Uh, and mm. so you can see that if a film's not costing a huge money because of star, of uh, effects, it's probably because they're hiring people who have reached a point in their career where they are unlikely to take a job for less than a certain amount of money. And it's, it is kind of baffling to me how films do cost that much, but you know, once they kind of start to uh, accumulate problems and things. I think town and country, reading about it, kind of had quite a lot of reshoots, rewrites, um, delays, a lot of things that kind of add up because you know you realise that when you're making a film, you know you're standing there and you've got a hundred people. It's costing you tens of thousands of dollars a second. Um, as soon as any kind of uh, delay comes in, then uh, you know that's going to be a pretty expensive venture. Um, like you mentioned Heaven's Gate there, it's kind of uh, notable that uh, some flops literally do kind of destroy studios. Uh, and in the case of Heaven's Gate and uh, another film, One from the Heart, um, they were films that were kind of so costly failures, they, you know, took the studios down with them, but also kind of ended uh, what we like to call the greatest era of movie making, <laughs> um, uh, the, you know, in kind of uh, history. Uh, um those two films, Heaven's Gate and One from the Heart, were the films that ended the 70s dream that, you know, artists should be given unlimited budgets to basically express themselves um, because two artists kind of went crazy um, and, uh, yeah, destroyed a studio. Indulgence definitely seems to play a big part in it. I think those those yeah. are two of the most indulgent films you could name, not merely because they're both examples of directors who have had Huge success. Francis Ford Coppola was coming off of the Godfather films, The Conversation, all big successes. Apocalypse Now, which despite being a, a kind of calamitous production, uh, was a huge hit and made a lot of money. And then you have Michael Cimino, who had directed Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which was a very successful film. And then he directed The Deer Hunter, which wasn't a huge, I don't think it was a huge financial hit, but it was certainly a huge critical hit and won Best Picture and everything. So they were given pretty much Kate Blanchett to do whatever they wanted. And mm-hmm. obviously what they wanted to do involved building elaborate and huge sets. 
and what but the in, in the case of Heaven's Gate I think it was always going to be quite costly because of what Chimino wanted to do which was essentially recreating the West on screen uh, which at one point involved building an entire street set and having it disassembled and then moved because it wasn't quite in the right position for the camera and you know it was a, a sign of the excess on display on that production uh, in the case of One for the Heart it's it's funny to consider that that was the exact opposite of what Francis Ford Coppola wanted because he'd done this big elaborate production with Apocalypse Now and he wanted to make something a little smaller he wanted to make a musical shot on real locations and everything and in the end that wasn't working out so he just built the locations and it ended up costing a huge amount of money yeah and it's one thing if your location is a room or a warehouse mm -hmm. or you know you know a church or something he built Las Vegas pretty much yeah <laughs> yeah and if you watch one from the heart which I will say is a great film it's really really great um uh, obviously it's got its problems um, but I, I really enjoy One from the Heart um, if you watch it you think oh they shot it in Vegas that's cool because you can literally can't really tell that they didn't which means kind of brings you to the point why did he bother doing it that way and if if, if the kind of uh, apocryphal stories are to be believed from the uh, the set of that film he directed it from a jacuzzi in a giant silver trailer via uh, kind of walkie talkie I can um, believe that he, yeah, I can believe that. So you know, excess has a like a lot to do with it. Um, but then some films can just kind of not do very well for a reason and kind of bring a studio to its knees. Famously, um, Walt Disney Animation um, were very nearly going to close in the eighties off the back of the Black Cauldron, which I think to this day is their only the only one of the Walt Disney animated classics that still hasn't turned a profit. Wow, that's very surprising. Because um, I guess it was, it it was that big of a big of a flop. Yeah, I guess it hasn't been re-released much. No, no one's putting out a diamond edition of uh, of the Black Cauldron anytime soon. And no one's like, yeah, that's my favorite Disney film. Mm. Even though I did enjoy it as a kid. That's that's always the fascinating thing is like, what is the film that it pretty much breaks the camel's back in terms of losing money? Just because sometimes you can look at something like. Heaven's Gate, and you think, oh yeah, I can definitely see why that would take down the studio. But something like the Black Cauldron, you just think, why was that so much? <laughs> like, why didn't that connect with audiences the way so many of the other Disney films did? Or why was that so ludicrously costly? And it's just, uh, and also, you know, why hasn't that happened more? Because I remember a few years ago, there was a big, there was a lot of nervous hand wringing around Tangled. Because Tangled mm. was a film that had been in development for a very long time, and because they had used it essentially to develop a lot of visual uh, computer effects software to help make their films, Disney spent somewhere like $220 million making it, making it the most expensive animated film of all time. And I think there was definitely a sense that, yeah, this needs to at least make a small profit to justify the years and years we spent on it. And uh, I think in the end that one did eke out a profit, but it was very much touch and go for a, for a long time. Mm. It, I don't care if it made a profit or not. It's the best Disney film. It is great. That's, that's certainly my opinion on, on the matter. Um, it's kind of weird how some uh, studios will kind of get drunk on success in a way and kind of get themselves into trouble. There's notably, if you look at New Line Cinema, which was a kind of a, a mini major, I think you'd probably call it, and you know, did a lot of kind of uh, smaller films, kind of like low-level uh, blockbusters. And then they, they did the uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, people forget that wasn't made 
by a major studio, um, but they've, they've kind of put together the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy, which was a huge risk financially for a studio uh, that size. Um, but then off the back of that, they tried to kind of recapture the magic and have kind of got themselves into no end of trouble. They tried to do um, uh, His Dark Materials as a kind of franchise that kind of failed miserably. Uh, they tried to do the Inkheart books that, again, failed miserably. Uh, more recently, they did Jack the Giant Slayer, um, which was, you know, it's, the top, it's a top 10 bomb that. Um, but the result of all these failures were that they were kind of absorbed into a, the, their parent company, which is Warner Brothers. And which had all those adverse effects on the the Hobbit, which they were, I think they were clearly baking, banking on as a way of making back some of those losses. But then, because they lost so much on everything, they ended up delaying the production of the film for years. So, so those guys are. So basically, we can blame New Line for how bad the Hobbit trilogy turned out to be. Yeah, at least it, ultimately, you can legitimately blame the studio for once instead of just doing it reactively and instinctively. Mm. In the same way as, as looking at the list of most successful films, um, a film's quality is no indicator of its, its success or its failure in the, in the sense that you know, Avatar and the Transformers films are the most successful. Um, you know, great films flop as well. I mean, uh, if you look at things like the People's Champion of films, The Shawshank Redemption, uh, massive uh, failure. It didn't cost a huge amount of money, so it doesn't really appear on this list but it was certainly a, a big failure um so quality has no no real measure on success either but then at the same kind of stroke a bona fide turkey will flop like pele's dick like pluto nash Gigli, battlefield earth howard the duck um if it's bad it generally tends to stink the joint up yeah i think it, but even then you know lack of quality is not necessarily a barrier to success as we've seen with our, our bet noir, Michael Bay, who has made a bunch mm. of films that are terrible, which uh, didn't make a huge amount of money, and uh, conversely, some of his better films, like The Island or Pay and Gain, which still aren't good films, but they are better, uh, were the ones that lost a huge amount of money. Yeah, but I mean, like in, in terms of things like Transformers or, or his films that have kind of like broken the bank, they're bad. And they're kind of reprehensible on many levels, but they're not Pluto Nash bad mm. or Gigli bad or Howard the Duck bad because those films are clearly made by someone brain damaged, whereas <laughs> uh, whereas the Michael Bay films are made by someone who is you know cynically exploitative kind of advert maker basically. Mm. I think when you say brain damage, I think you mean they have a unique and artistic vision that the world just wasn't ready for. Yes, that's yes. a polite way of saying it. That's the politically correct way of saying it. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think um, that that does play a part in it. Sometimes it is a case where a film just doesn't connect people because it is a unique vision that people just aren't kind of able to comprehend, or at least a wide audience isn't able to comprehend. You know, a good example of this from recent years would be Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which is a film that cost, it wasn't a hugely expensive film. I think it cost something in the 40 or $50 million range, but it didn't make that back. Globally, you know, it was lost a lot of money in theatres because it was a film that was kind of geared towards a very specific audience and didn't go out of its way to court the mainstream by being about a lot of kind of niche, nerdy interests, you know, 80s video games and indie rock music from Canada. So I think mm. that, uh, but you know, it's obviously found its audience 
at the time, people who liked the comics and who were fans of Edgar Wright's work went to see it in the cinema, and then it's found a bigger audience uh, at home. But that still doesn't mean that it didn't fail initially to really break out of the uh, ghetto that it was It was pretty much always going to be confined to because of the kind of film it is. Yeah, yeah. That was the film that kind of proved that there wasn't really much worth in the geek dollar. Mm. Um, well, a certain type of geek dollar. Um, in the sense that, like, um, you know, a lot of the appeal was for kind of people who are into video games to go and watch it, but then younger kids couldn't get into it because, you know, all the video game references were to, like, you know, old kind of 8 and 16-bit games that they weren't born when we're, when people were playing them. Um, so it kind of uh, seemed to kind of uh, fall between two stalls, unfortunately, because it's, it's a fun film. Mm, I think you can also see an example of, of kind of going the opposite way of a film that had slightly obscure, well, very obscure source material and which managed to appeal to a big audience would be something like Big Hero 6 from last year, which is a film based on a very obscure uh, Marvel comic that not really had anyone had heard of and they were able to turn it into a very successful film even though it's kind of got a lot of oddness and idiosyncrasies to it, such as the fact that it takes place in a future uh, city called... San Francisco, which is a mix of American and, and Japanese culture, which is, you know, just not the sort of thing you would expect to see in a big blockbuster. Is this weird world that imagines an entirely different uh, culture to the one that we currently live in? But because mm. it was very kind of broad and appealing, and it had a cuddly character in this form of Baymax to put in the adverts, it managed to connect with a lot of people. Mm. Same with the film we talked about a lot last year, Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. Uh, a fairly obscure um, source material in the sense that you know, if you probably, if you, if you, you'd probably have a good chance of getting Guardians of the Galaxy as a pointless answer on pointless if you asked, uh, you know, name a Marvel comic uh, because it would be quite far down the list for your man on the street. Yeah, absolutely. That was a film. That was a source material that no one really had heard of prior to the film coming out and even those people who heard of it probably wouldn't have cited it as one of their favourites it was very much a niche interest but by taking that and creating a film that had a very appealing sense of humour and a very kind of broad understandable story it was able to connect in a very you know kind of a way that startled everyone um, another reason that films flop um, is hubris mm. um, and I think about something like Gigli, um being kind of a prime example of that in the sense that you know kind of a, a script was knocking around and and there was a kind of hot couple who uh had been kind of had a relative success individually and but i mean i think if you look at the kind of box office running up to that ben affleck's films had not really kind of set the world on fire uh jennifer lopez hadn't had a huge breakout hit on her own i think because she had done some kind of rom-coms and stuff um and then yeah they did this and um Brought Martin Breston, who, let's not forget, directed uh, one of the greatest action comedies of all time in Beverly Hills Cop and the greatest action comedy of all time in Midnight Run. Um, and they brought him in and the results are, you know, just kind of excruciatingly poor. Yeah, hubris, I think, is definitely a big part of it. I think also something that you hear see a lot is big budget comedies tend to be uh, adversely affected by this. Because I think you, if you look at something like Evan Almighty, which is a particularly huge flop. That one, mm -hmm. you had a comedy with a enormous budget, you know, lots of special effects and everything, and then people just didn't show up, partly because 
I don't think anyone really wanted to see a spin-off from Bruce Almighty about Steve Carell's character, but also because I think there is something about comedy that is helped by cheapness. Because I think if you're working with a low budget, you have to try and make it as sharp as possible. Mm. Um, I think that's why, for example, uh, Monty Python films, Monty, the Monty Python films are so good as they're not made for a huge amount of money. They are, you know, particularly in the case of the Holy Grail, they're kind of ludicrously cheap. And mm. they look cheap, but because you have so much little to work with, you have to just try and make it as funny as possible. Whereas, as you we were saying earlier, if there's a problem on a bit film with a big budget, the solution is just to throw more money at it instead of trying to think, how can we make this joke land better? Yeah, there's, there's a quite a few comedies on the list of things like Dudley Do-Right and Sergeant Bilko and uh, The Adventures of Rocky Ball, Rocky Ball Winkle, which probably teaches us do not make kind of modern big budget adapt, adaptations of comedies that were funny 30 years ago. And yeah, you should definitely not make films based on things that people will only know because The Simpsons very occasionally references them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're a punchline in The Simpsons, that's probably not a good thing. Um, uh, there's often films kind of a big failures that because there's just such a huge layout um, on kind of advancing the technology or kind of doing something quite daring with it, big. Uh, kind of loser on the list is uh, the Final Fantasy film, which was mm. um, a kind of uh, supposed to be kind of lifelike, um, kind of CGI, kind of very kind of photorealistic, um, but actually kind of no one was interested. That can go one of two ways because clearly sometimes people are excited to see something that has the offer of new technology. I think that's probably one of the reasons why Avatar was such a huge hit was that people were excited to see these old new worlds realised in 3D which had a certain novelty effect to it mm -hmm. whereas I think that adapting Final Fantasy which is a very popular series but it's still kind of nerdy and still kind of niche compared to a lot of other ones, adapting that with new technology was a, ref a recipe for disaster in a lot of ways because the fans of the series were turned off because it wasn't based on any of the games mm. it just had the name and non-fans of the series were like why would I want to see a film based on this game I don't play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a kind of very odd film that, and the problem is with a film that's animated or, uh, you know, that's that takes a long production time is that you can't really kind of abandon those things if it's not going particularly mm -hmm. well. You can't really turn around and go back and with something like an animated feature, you're kind of really not going to know if it's any good until quite late on, and then in which case you realise you're kind of in trouble. And that's one of the things that I always find interesting when you hear stories about the early days of Pixar where they were making the films and they had these disastrous test screenings and they had to keep remaking Toy Story and over and over again because the characters all seemed a little too mean and things like that, and then having to just start from scratch and thinking, you know, it's a huge risk to go that far in because you can't do reshoots the most you could do is that thing that Patton Oswald made fun of quite a lot in his stand-up where you get people to write punch-up on things that people can shout off-screen. Mm -hmm. You know, just adding jokes where there weren't any before because there's no way you can actually cheaply uh, animate new stuff going into it. You have to make the best, uh, do the best with what you have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, production problems um, can really uh, kind of be the kiss of death 
uh, on a film for kind of a variety of reasons. A couple of films we've talked about in the past, um, The Lone Ranger and John Carter, um, both had kind of huge delays, uh, kind of uh, big problems, budget overruns, lots of issues. Um, another film I can think of, The Invasion, from a few years ago, a film that everyone mm. has forgotten existed. Uh, but, you know, a massive remake of... Uh, massive budget remake of uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers that, you know, fired the director towards the end and brought on new writers and reshot for, you know, like several weeks to try and fix the problems with it. These things, uh, as much as troubled productions can kind of wrestle out of it and become great, Apocalypse Now, don't get many more troubled productions than that one, um, they have a huge knock-on effect because, you know, problems happen on set leaks back all there's delays mm, must be something wrong must be something bad it gets back to the you know uh people not valuing it and then all of a sudden you've got a market you've got market a film that people aren't valuing and they're not giving you a lot of money and they don't really know what to do with it and then you end up with the lone ranger and john carter essentially i think that definitely hint, touches on something that can play a huge part in the success of the film which is the media surrounding it mm-hmm. because you know one of the stories that people tell about why Heaven's Gate was such a disaster out of, out of the gate um, was that a reporter snuck on as an extra, reported all of the horrible production problems, and then that poisoned the well against the film from like almost a year before the film was even going to come out. And that poisonous buzz surrounding it, which you can also see in uh, Jupiter Ascending and John Carter, where there's changes made to the title or the film's delayed for a really long time, that turns people against it before they've even seen a frame of it. Mm. And that is something that, you know, The Lone Ranger is another good example because most of the stories leading up to its release were talking about having to stop production for a week, having to rewrite the script because they couldn't have werewolves in it and things like that. And these these details, which as soon as they leaked out, they just make the thing sound so crazy that it becomes really off-putting to a lot of people. And the media plays a very big part in affecting how people how likely people are to check a film out before they actually see it. Yeah, which is crazy because, you know, they, you know, you can have a kind of 10% rating on Rotten Tomatoes because your film has been critically, you know, destroyed, but that has no effect on Transformers 3. Whereas, <laughs> you know, a couple of negative set reports from John Carter or Lone Rangers can, can absolutely kill it. Um, and it's yeah, it's weird that like it, it, some films appear to be bulletproof to it. Like quite accidentally earlier this week, um, I watched Men in Black Three because uh, it was it was on telly and it started and you know I, that's a commitment for me. So you know I watched it to the end. Actually, quite a lot of fun that film. Uh, it's a lot better than Men in Black Two. I'll say that. But then I kind of had a little read about it afterwards, as I am want to do. Um, and they started filming that with that script. 
So, um, you know, but then like that, that you know, you'd worry about that. But then, you know, they're two films into a hugely successful franchise and can probably get away with it. Yeah, I think for some franchises, there's a they eventually develop a momentum that carries them through things like that, mm. uh, which you know other franchises wouldn't get away with. For example, last year there was kind of a it was not a huge flop, but it was notable that Horrible Bosses Two made half of what the original did, mm. even though the original came out and got okay reviews and people seemed to like it, and the second one came out and got okay reviews and people seemed to like it, but it made half as much. And there, it's just one of those things where you look at it and you try and figure out what it was that caused that to fail and it's really not immediately apparent. Mm. Maybe it's like we're going back to the old way of, of sequels, like like kind of before the 90s, maybe the kind of 2000s. Um, this is backed up by literally nothing, but you can, you can check it and I think you'll find I'm mostly correct that uh, sequels used to have diminishing returns. You know, the, yeah. the sequel never used to make as much as the, the original. Like, if you look at even something like The Godfather made a huge amount of money. Godfather 2 made half the amount, whereas now it's, you know, they have to build and get more and more and more. Um, we're kind of in a kind of franchise world. And I think the Austin Powers series, I seem to remember being the first one to do because the first one did nothing, uh, but then did a lot on home video. So they made a second one that made a shit to load of money, and then the third one even more. And that's kind of reversed the trend. So maybe it's going backwards. It definitely seems to be a case of studios changing the way they address sequels. I think in most cases, sequels used to be seen as a way of capitalising on something and making a quick buck. Mm. So you put a sequel in pretty quickly. And sometimes you end up with things like Batman Returns, which you know I love and I think is a really great sequel that takes a lot of the... that That is more personal to Tim Burton than the first one and has a lot more personality and a lot more craziness in it. But in that case, they essentially said the first one made a huge amount of money. Do whatever you want with the sequel. Just keep the budget under control. And they probably would have done the same with the third one if um, Burton had decided to continue with the franchise. But yeah, again, I think that was a case of thinking as long as it makes us money, we don't really care that much. Whereas now, there is definitely a sense that sequels have to keep making more and more money because it's a way of uh, perpetuating income for years and years in future. If you can say... Oh, every two years we're going to put out a Fast and Furious film and they're all going to make like nearly a billion dollars worldwide, then that makes a lot more financial sense than the slew of, say, um, Friday the 13th sequels, which not not many of which made a huge amount of money compared to the original, but they were cheap and you could keep churning them out pretty much on a yearly basis. Mm. And then just reboot it whenever you get bored. Exactly, yeah. Mm. So we've kind of come like literally nowhere near uh, getting our head around what makes a flop, but there is one thing that I can definitely say you don't do if you want your film to make money, which is uh, don't set it on Mars, uh, because mm -hmm. uh, quite a lot of films <laughs> set on Mars have done pretty badly. Uh, uh, Mars Need Mums is uh, in, you know, in the top two. Uh, you know, biggest failures of all time. Watched that yesterday. It is absolutely fucking abhorrent. It is so awful. It's a motion captured film in the way that uh, Polar Express was. It was put together by Robert Zemeckis' uh, studio, which, oh, like talking about kind of ending studios, it ended their run of films. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, suffers very much from the uncanny valley uh, effect of having something that looks so lifelike. It looks like nothing you've ever seen before in real life. Um, just a kind of crazily uh, kind of lifeless plot uh, about uh, Martians 
uh, not being able to raise their children, so they abduct uh, mums from Earth to get them to to raise children. But it's just really weird and stupid and not funny, not interesting for children or adults or humans. I don't know who they thought was going to watch that. Um, and yeah, uh, no surprise, it's it's absolutely appalling and did nothing. But yes, that's out on Mars. John Carter, we've mentioned Red Planet. All films didn't do particularly well, so that's your lesson. Don't set it on Mars. I think uh, Mars need, Needs Moms is a very f- funny example of how what a seismic effect how some flops have no effect on the the broader climate and then some have huge effects because prior to its complete failure i remember there was a lot of talk that motion capture was going to be the future of films and people saying like zemeckis was planning to do a remake of the yellow submarine for a very long time he was going to do a remake of uh fantastic voyage i believe uh, which was going to be all mo capture and I think everyone was saying that this is just the way we're going to make films now. And then as soon as Master Needs Bond came out, the Yellow Submarine was cancelled and everyone stopped talking about it as something you could build an entire film around, except in the cases of you know, individual characters like in the Caesar in the Planet of the Apes movies. But you know, mm. I, think, I always think that's a, an interesting example of how one flop can completely shatter and change the, uh, the ecosystem of Hollywood in a very real way. So yeah, um, we've kind of attempted to get to the bottom of why a film flops, um, and yeah, I've got no, I've got literally no answers. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think I think it's often a combination of things. I think in most cases it, pro- it is down to just like marketing and press, because there's loads of films that are terrible or had really bad productions that just that that were that should have doomed them based on those criteria but because the press you know the press were kind of in Francis Ford Coppola's favour when he was making Apocalypse Now so they didn't make it seem all disastrous or there was no one on set because they probably feared for their life mm-hmm. which would have been a reasonable uh, assumption to make um, you know that there are situations but in some cases people just have the knives out for a certain director like the Wachowskis who have pretty much destroyed all goodwill for them or Neil Blomkamp who seems to be in the doghouse at the moment with Chappie yeah, yeah. I have to say that, like, um, I've not seen Chappie yet, um, but it's a film that literally did nothing to capture my imagination from the title, uh, which I've remarked uh, makes it sound like something that a granddad would call his penis, um, <laughs> and the poster of a robot spelling his name with building blocks didn't particularly try and drag me in, but then that's also, we're talking about kind of problems compacting on each other and this being kind of like a kind of tailback. Um, that, you know, the marketing has been kind of non-existent because I think the studio knew they had a bit of a turd and have dumped it. Mm, that definitely is the sense that I get. They've really lost confidence in it as, a, as an mm. enterprise in the way that they changed the marketing completely what marketing there was for ages posited it as a kind of a light-hearted comedy and then only recently they've said oh it's actually a very serious film about saving the human race and you, mm. you when you make a change like that that late in the, the day even if it may accurately present the fact that the film has different tones that shift over the course of the story i think for audiences they're like wait can i take my kids to see this it looks kind of violent I thought it was like mm. a, a very broad, appealing comedy, and you're telling me that it's now completely not, and it's actually really violent and scary and weird. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
But there you have it. Um, that's flops, everyone. Uh, I hope you guys have got more of an idea than you did at the start. Um, I certainly don't. Um, and I wouldn't recommend uh, reliving my kind of viewing history for the past week because there's some... I mean, we didn't even talk about Jack the Giant Slayer, but I had to fucking watch it because I thought it might be important. But no, that's just, just a terrible, terrible... Uh, film and it kind of feeds into that kind of that Lord of the Rings episode we had the other day when we were talking about you know the Lord of the Rings series impact on cinema and just kind of again like I said about Maleficent you could just lift shots from uh, any of the Lord of the Rings films take them out and replace them with a shot from from Jack and the Giants there and you probably won't be able to tell the difference um, yeah such is it but anyway that's a side point at least I got to shoot one in in the end um, I would I would recommend people watch Jupiter Ascending because there are moments in it that are incredibly funny there is right. a moment towards there is a moment towards the end of it which rivals uh, Bella saying, "So, you're a werewolf," to uh, Jacob in uh, Twilight New Moon, where yeah. uh, where Channing Tatum says to Mina Kunis, "Are you ever going? Do you think you'll ever tell them?" And she says, "What that I own the earth," and she says it in such a she says it in such a casual, tossed tossed off way that it's just impossible not to laugh at the ridiculousness of what she's saying. Wow. Well, there you go. It's it's one to uh, it's definitely a one to get uh, to rent on video if that's oh, yeah. what happens these days. Um, yeah, it'll be it'll be one that uh, yeah I, I kind of check out as soon as it's available at home. But uh, yeah, haven't quite seen yet. Um, so yeah, that's uh, flops. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us uh, as we keep telling you to do so. But you know, get on it. Um, find us on uh, iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Twitter and all the general things um, so you've got no excuse we've told you now um, we'll be back next week with something uh, equally as uh, enlightening um, but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me